Prisons are big business in Australia. Companies not only run some of them, but supply many of the services, like transportation. Many prisoners work both inside and outside the gates, and there's hope that these programs can reduce recidivism. On this episode of Business Briefing, we're looking at the business of prisons. How well does privatisation work? Are prisoners better off? When is it value for money? To kick us off, I had a chat with Catherine McFarlane, a deputy director of the Centre for Law and Justice at Charles Sturt University. Privatisation, we talk about it as if it's all or nothing, that you have a public jail or you have a private jail. It's really changed in the last 20 years. It's not like that anymore. But you've also got privatisation that is of different parts of the jail system. So you have the privatisation of transport services, the privatisation of electronic monitoring, the privatisation of um, court services, you know, driving people transport, um, paperwork, those sorts of things. Privatisation of um, what's called buy-ups, which is basically where prisoners can buy food and additional um, services. So those things are run and have been um, for a long time um, by different companies. So you don't have really any more an argument that privatisation hasn't got a place because it's here and it's been here for a long time. It's a really big shifting argument, though, to say we're going to have a private, completely private jail. What really is the case for privatisation? Is it nominatively cheaper to privatise prisons and get them off the government books? Private operators have argued that they can do it cheaper, more efficiently and lower down on the scale, more humanely than the public system. And there's variations of all those arguments, but they're the main three. Cheaper, more efficient and more humane. Is that is that true? If we just looked at the budget, the state government's bottom line, we, we might be able to say yes or no, it's cheap or not, but that really doesn't take into account the secondary effects. The, the problem is, is that it's cheaper, but for what? And one of the difficulties is that it might be cheaper, and a huge criticism of private enterprises is that the cost savings come at the expense of the, the prison staff. So that prison officers, you have less staff per, um, you know, per prisoner to look after than you would if you were in a public prison. But if you are saying that you're going to do things cheaply, Well, the first thing that's been proven to go are the staff, and the second thing, and and where the critics argue, is that it's at the sake of um, programs and the like that would actually assist in having less prisoners. How does privatisation actually work? Is it like we we get a contract over this prison for a certain number of years and then we get paid per prisoner, or, you know, how exactly does that work? Private companies, a lot of what... how they get paid and and how it works is actually hidden from view. So the public can't see it. So we don't really know what it is in in a lot of detail and it makes that scrutiny very difficult. I mean, a lot of people would have seen um, Orange is the New Black and I think that kind of thing is the way we we think about this where all of a sudden you'll get way more people crammed into the prison and they'll cut all the programs and, you know, you'll have half the staff. Is this actually true? Like, is this conception true? Um, yes and no. That's not a definite answer for you. Um, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who'd been in custody for a number of years in both public and private prisons just yesterday, just to check. You know, I said to him, "What's it like for you? What was it like?" And he said that the violence prevention. He was a violent offender, armed robber, and he said that the violent offender programs that he did in a private prison were amongst the best programs that he had ever done. However. 
You, I've spoken to many other prisoners and I've seen the situation where the public system used to be that it offered a lot more rehabilitation. In Australia, there are no studies comparing the effectiveness of recidivism, so the idea that somebody comes, how soon it takes them to come back to jail. There's no studies that said, does private do it better than public? I mean, it's ridiculous. We've had 20 years of privatisation in, in prisons in Australia. There's no studies on that, that can actually point to it. So a lot of arguments are there um, that privatisation works better, but what you constantly get is the jury's still out. You've introduced a whole bunch of doubt into this debate, I guess. So what, what, should we, what should we take away from that? In recent years, reports of privatised prisons have said that they argue that they're going to do things cheaper, but the evidence is still very much out. They argue that they're going to be more effective, the evidence is still out. They argue they're going to be more humane, the evidence is out. That was Catherine McFarlane, Deputy Director of the Centre for Law and Justice at Charles Sturt University. This is The Future This Week in Conversation. I'm Sandra Peter, Director of Sydney Business Insights. I'm Kai Remo, Professor of Information Technology and Organisation at the University of Sydney Business School. Artificial intelligence is supposed to change many things. Could it change prisons? According to a team at Swinburne University, yes. They are working on a radically new way of organising prisons in the form of virtual prisons where technology is used to detain people in their own homes. So algorithms, sensors, monitoring people 24 hours a day. Combined with ankle bracelets, which arguably are not new, those technologies could be used to survey and contain people in their own homes. And here's the creepy bit. Try to predict when someone is going to reoffend or commit a crime and then use the ankle bracelet to incapacitate the person. This is a futuristic vision, right? Minority report type stuff. But beyond the actual ethical implications of doing this, the question to ask is, is there really an economic incentive to rethink the way we've been doing prisons? We've had the same system for hundreds of years now. So while you could take this as your starting point to say we need to bring about change and technology can be used to radically rethink the prison system to move away from retribution to a more people-centered system that favors rehabilitation, the economics of prisons these days are that they're increasingly privatized in Australia, they're largely privatized in the US. And they are big business. So whilst there might be an economic incentive to rethink prisons in places like Scandinavia, where you have the concept of an open prisons that's designed to be comfortable and pleasing and simulate normal life environments where people are pretty much free to go around as they please under certain conditions. A forward-looking system that foregrounds reintegration into society. Whilst in the US, where more than 2 million people are incarcerated, prisons are also a huge source of very, very cheap labor. So strikingly, the minimum daily wage for incarcerated workers is as low as 93 cents and the maximum is still under $4. And those wages have gone down over the last 15 years. And many people work in this sector. So this is almost like slave labor. So whilst technology might help us rethink what prisons were built for, keeping away people who have done bad things and giving them a chance to reform, there might not be an economic incentive to change one of the things they actually perform now in society, which is provide us access to very cheap labor. So the application of technology 
to change the face of prisons would require us to rethink what prisons are for and the economics of prisons in places where prisoners perform cheap labor, but arguably also jobs that no other workers want to perform, such as in abattoirs and other jobs of that kind. So the conversation that has to happen is not just around technology, but around the way in which we do prisons. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. That was Professor Kai Riemer from the University of Sydney Business School and Sandra Peter, Director of Sydney Business Insights. A large proportion of prisoners end up back in prison. Many policies have been enacted to tackle this issue. And I had a chat with one researcher who was looking at a program in the Northern Territory. Employers are reluctant to employ someone who's got a prison background. This is Jo Wodak. She was a research assistant on a project looking at how to get more prisoners back into work after their sentence ends. 70% of prisoners are involved in some kind of industry. There's two kinds of prison industries. There's the service ones, which do laundry and do maintenance on the facility and general cleaning. And then there's the commercial industries, which are much more like real workplace, overseer-led, production lines and output goal set. So apart from experience... What preparation do prisoners have before they try to find work outside? There will be usually TAFE courses that the overseers have a role in. They get certificates in engineering or IT skills or agricultural courses. And then unless they've got a job already set up on the outside, a job employment agency will come in and contact them, ideally, in that pre-release stage and it's linked up with an agency so when they come out, they get assistance in getting a job. That's the ideal setup. So 70% of inmates get industry experience within prison, but data shows there are numerous reasons why they find it hard to put this into practice. For instance, two-thirds of prisoners have not completed year 10, and two-thirds have used illicit drugs. At least a quarter of prisoners have mental health issues, and another quarter don't have stable accommodation. Many were homeless before they were imprisoned. The number of prisoners across Australia who get what's called works release, which is in the final stage of sentence, in the minimum security stage, they go out in the community and they get a proper job uh, paid at award wages. And that is under 1% of that total population. But in the Northern Territory, it's now 8%, which is very, very dramatically different from the sort of national trend. Joe went to investigate one of the programs in the Northern Territory that is sending prisoners to work in the real world. What happens in that program is there's been a huge effort to engage employers and also develop positive community attitudes to this program. So the prisoners in there, when they're called the open security rating, when they're in sort of outside the prison walls, they will be matched to an employer on a waiting list in terms of their job skills, what their sort of preferences are, what the employer wants, what they're looking for, whatever. And then once that matching takes place, there's a lot of mentoring support both for the employer and the prisoner in that program. For the employers, the positives are kind of practical and moral as well. They all said they felt good about making a difference. They all wanted to help the prisoners have a a chance. But they also talked about how fantastic it was to have a punctual, reliable, 
workforce. The prisoners work in a range of different places, including warehouses and laundries. They also work as mango pickers, building houses, or driving buses. Once they're released, they receive six months of support to find and keep a job. And from the from the employer and the community perspective, I think the huge advantage is it normalises prisoners. A lot of employers said they felt they were taking a risk in the beginning, they were very apprehensive, and they were really, really happy that the prisoner workers were just like any other worker. And that was, I think, a very, very important plus. But despite all of this, Joe says the evidence is weak that getting a job and receiving human and social services reduces reoffending. There are so many other factors involved, apart from getting a job, that make it likely that you're going to get back into trouble. If you've got a drug and alcohol problem, if you don't have accommodation, if your family's rejected you, if you go back to your, you know, the people that you know and the areas in the city where you, you previously, wherever you're squatted or, or um, that rough, chances are you're likely to come back in. The whole approach to making employment work has got to be supported by other prisoner, ex-prisoner needs being addressed at the same time. That's the crux of it. That was Joe Wodak, who researches education, training and employment in prisoner rehabilitation. That's it for Business Briefing this week. I'm Josh Nicholas, Deputy Editor of Business and Economy at The Conversation. Our theme music is by Ben Sound, And if you'd like to find more episodes of Business Briefing, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. You can also find more episodes of Business Briefing on The Conversations website.